slightly listening to some of your conversations, uh, which I guess sort of end up being a, a real mixture of encouraging and heartbreaking, actually. Uh, I mean, in some ways, this parable is heartbreaking because, to be honest, particularly as I, you, you think about the, um, the rocky area and the thorns, you know, people who've grown up for a while and then and nowhere. I don't know about you, faces were in my mind. Actually, faces of people who've sat here, actually, over the years, who just thought they'd grown the nowhere. I hope also, though, it was an encouraging conversation. Actually, as you perhaps reflected on faces of people you knew before they were Christians, and actually the seed has gone and it's landed on good soil, and, well, they're merely producing a crop all of their own. It, it's a parable that is both encouraging and heartbreaking. Let me reflect on it a, a little bit. This sort of isn't preaching style particularly, so much as four or five implications um, that might be worth us thinking about. Firstly, notice the, the language that, that Jesus uses where he talks about the seed being the message of the kingdom. Do you see that in verse 19? Listen to what the power of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom. The kingdom, as I say, is, uh, is what this series is all about, because as Jesus goes through, we are going to see the kingdom of heaven, verse 24, is like a man who sowed uh, good seed in his field. Or verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. So all those uh, pictures that we started off with, we're going to see repeatedly the language of the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, uh, in all the different parables that are coming up. Now, here's an interesting question. I wonder to what, how often we actually think in terms of kingdom. One of the fun things at the moment of working with Living Out is landing in quite a, a variety of different uh, church contexts. And um, one of the issues in the, uh, the different church contexts is, is having conversations with people from different church backgrounds. Um, and I was in a, a more charismatic church a couple of weeks ago uh, and chatting to actually a Christian a bit older than me saying, ah, Fun thing is, if you land in a conservative circle, everybody talks about the gospel, and if you land in a more charismatic circle, everybody talks about the kingdom. And it was just an interesting point to muse on. And I think there's something in that. And actually, if we were more biblical, often we would talk about the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of God's kingdom. Because often I think when we think gospel, we think purely in terms of Jesus dying so that we can be forgiven, which is gloriously and wonderfully true, but actually, as you look at the Gospels, it does go a bit deeper than that. So let me do about three minutes with you on Matthew's Gospel to illustrate the background to these parables about the kingdom. The first passage just worth looking at is actually the passage that I started uh, this afternoon's session with. So Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news, gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness among the people. And then if you just shoot forward using your fingers, and you go to, uh, to chapter 9 and uh, verse 35, you find almost exactly the same verse. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. And so Matthew is sort of really using those twin verses to summarize the nature of Jesus' ministry. He announces that the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's language, has arrived. That if you like, the reign of God has appeared on the earth. And that's happening in two ways. 
It's happening through Jesus himself. Heaven comes down to earth. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom, the one who's bringing it in. And then do you notice what Jesus does? He announces it and he demonstrates it. So do you notice? He heals every disease. He casts out demons. And at various points within that section, once or twice, he raises the dead as well. It's worth reflecting on Jesus' miracles. They're not just tricks to show that he's impressive. You know, sometimes I think we kind of see miracles and say, ah, oh, there's a miracle, and that shows that Jesus is God. That's true, but the nature of the miracle also matters. Basically, what Jesus is doing in his ministry is the kingdom of heaven is coming down, and of course, in the kingdom, there is no sickness, and there is no death, and there is no evil. That's quite deliberate. Jesus is showing what the kingdom is like. He's saying, I am bringing in a kingdom. I'm announcing it and I'm demonstrating it. And the kingdom I am bringing in is a kingdom where sickness and evil and death were abolished. Now, you might say, okay, but let's be honest, we still get sick and we still get die, and there's still plenty of evidence of evil in the world. And that's why Jesus tells his disciples to pray, your kingdom come. Because Jesus is demonstrating the kingdom that is coming and that one day will exist forever. And I actually find that in various parables where towards in Matthew 25, particularly in 24 actually, there's a kingdom has come but is also delayed and will come fully. And what Jesus' death and resurrection does is it enables people to be part of that kingdom. Because of course this is a kingdom where sin doesn't exist either. So how are you going to be part of that kingdom? Well, only as sin in death are dealt with. Do you, do you see the point? That actually this kingdom is this glorious reign that Jesus shows on earth that will happen in the future where sickness, death, and evil don't exist and into which people are invited as Jesus dies for their sins. See the message? That's the message of the kingdom. That's the message that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 13. I suspect we probably ought to use kingdom language more than we do, actually, because it does go to the heart of Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. It is the good news of the kingdom. But then, this good news of the kingdom will be rejected, and we shouldn't be discouraged by that. As I say, some people will listen to Jesus and go away completely mystified. And if anything, with their hearts harder than they were before they got there, actually. Because they've had the chance to listen to Jesus and they've rejected that. And the reason the kingdom message will be rejected is partly because of the hardness of people's hearts. But of course, it's also the work of Satan. I mentioned 2 Corinthians 4, Satan blinds people's eyes. But of course, what you get in the parable is this image of the evil one, Satan, taking the seed away <clears throat> that has been sown on the path. And Satan will use all kinds of things. People get distracted. People think about other things. People think, I don't really understand this, so it just disappears from their minds. Can I say, it is just worth noting in passing that there is a spiritual battle on every time God's word goes out. And again, probably we don't spend enough time reflecting on that. I can say this because my time is moving on, as it were, but just a gentle observation. I don't think we pray for what happens on Sundays as much as we might do. Often when we do sort of church prayer meetings, let's pray for the church ministry. It's great. Sunday will be fine. 
Whereas actually every time God's word goes out, if this is right, there's a spiritual battle going on. And Satan is wanting to take the seed away and using anything he can do to avoid God's word getting into people's minds. But let me encourage you with the fact that God's word is rejected. That means if you tell people the gospel and they don't get converted, it's not your fault. And actually, we do need to know that. Because I don't know about you, every time I sort of share the gospel with people and they're unconvinced, they say, oh, Andy, you used that wrong word. If only that you'd used some other word, they would have been convinced. Or if only you were more persuasive. Or if only if you were bold. If only you wore a nicer shirt. You know, then they'd be converted. Well, Jesus was rejected. And often his words were rejected. And I think we can kind of assume that wasn't his fault. And though that's painful, and, and in saying this, of course it's painful, because often the people rejecting it are people we love. But it's not your fault. And actually, it's not the fault of the message either. It's just been the experience of the prophets. It's been the experience of Jesus. It's been the experience of the early church. It's the experience all the way through time. Satan takes the seed away. People's hearts are hard. Don't be discouraged when it feels as though the message is rejected. And then, one other reflection, which is linked to that, is wondering whether there are benefits as we communicate the gospel of just using Jesus' technique. It's interesting that as he lobs this parable out, it's almost an encouragement for people to be intrigued and want more. I think one of the things that I changed the way that I did it over the years was, was this. I used to think whenever I communicated the gospel, I had to say everything. You know, we had to make sure we had creation, sin, judgment, cross, resurrection, spirit. Otherwise, it wasn't a proper sermon. Or otherwise, it wasn't a proper conversation. Now, to be honest, if you download all that in a conversation, it tends to be quite awkward in one way. I don't think we should feel bad as if, you know, when we're talking to a friend, we just share something very brief about Jesus, or the difference Jesus made to us, and see what happens. It might be they just change the conversation very quickly. It might be, oh, that's interesting. What, what do you mean by that? That feels very Jesus-like in its approach, actually. Bob's a parable about, and there's an interest. Will people ask for more or not? There you go. That's just a reflection for you to muse on. Here's a third. You can only tell if somebody is converted after a while. You can only tell if somebody is converted after a while. I kind of wish I didn't have to say this, but, but occasionally my reflection, and again, probably in my early years as a Christian, you know, I'd sat with somebody and they'd, they'd kind of prayed a prayer to accept Jesus. And my immediate response was, oh, isn't it wonderful? So-and-so's become a Christian. And they may well have done. They may well have done. But I think probably over the years as I heard people say that, that was increasingly my response. Yeah, they may well have done. That'd be great. And we'll probably know in a few years' time. But because actually that's just the reality of the parable of the sower, isn't it? Actually, in a sense, people's genuine faith gets proved over a period of time. Because sadly, and again, we probably have examples in our mind, for some people it will be that rocky ground where trouble and persecution will come along. 
Or for some people, it will be the thorns where it is great, but suddenly the whole of life chokes things out. We shouldn't be discouraged by that because, in a sense, the genuineness of faith is only proved over a period of time. Now, let me tell you what that doesn't mean. It doesn't mean we say to this person who's prayed that they want to accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, well, I'll only treat you as a Christian in a few years' time. That's not what it means. Because actually, if you think about the day of Pentecost, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And 3,000 people came along, and Peter said, well, tell you what, come back in a few years' time, and we'll work out how genuine your faith is, and then we will baptize you. No, no, if people are professing faith in the Lord Jesus, we take that, I think, generally at face value. We encourage people as fellow Christians, just as Barnabas did for Saul, actually, after he was converted. Yeah, we want to encourage people. I'm very happy for people to be baptized fairly quickly after conversion. It's just the genuineness of that is only proved in the long term. And that's true for all of us, actually. You know, for all of us, I hope we're not sitting here saying, I'm a Christian because 27 years ago I prayed a prayer. Actually, we're saying, I'm a Christian because today I'm still living with Jesus, my Savior and Lord. It's proved over the long haul. I think, and I wouldn't normally do this in a sermon, this is just me reflecting out loud, that will mean churches will end up baptizing people who don't end up to be Christians in the long haul. I've done it, you know, and I don't think I made a mistake. People appeared as Christians, but if you take the parable of the sorrow at face value, you will only know that over the years, because there will be those who fall on the rocky ground or get choked by thorns and thistles. You only know over the long haul, which means here's a fourth implication. We need to notice the twin contemporary dangers tell this isn't a sermon because my headings are rubbish, but note the twin contemporary dangers. Because do you notice the two ways in which the seed will initially look as though it's had a response and then doesn't produce long-term fruit? Verse 21, trouble or persecution. Verse 22, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, less in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, the power of the sower is primarily used to encourage Christians to listen in the right way. I think in Matthew, it's more trying to give people a sense of this is what the kingdom is like. But nevertheless, it's worth saying for all of us who are Christians, the thing we need to watch out for is that we persevere in trouble and persecution and we don't get life and the desire for stuff in life and the worries of life to so crowd out God's word that it disappears. And those are two discipleship issues. So I think one of the key things we need to be saying to young Christians or to people who just received God's word is this. You are going to get persecuted and you need to be ready for it. I'm increasingly convinced in our youth work and so on, that is a message we need to communicate clearly. Partly because, I think Richard alluded to this in the church weekend, my guess is it's going to get harder in the next few years. But also because Jesus says one of the reasons people don't last is because persecution comes and they're not ready for it. And so I need to say to all of us, we need to be ready for it to be harder to be a Christian. 
We, we need to fake, get ready for the time when it might feel as though the gospel is producing relatively little fruit and we're discouraged by that. Can I say, that will be part of our experience and we need to be ready for it. And actually, as we train younger Christians, one of the key, actually probably early things we need to do in discipleship is get people ready to be opposed. Because Jesus says if they're not ready for it, that's one reason why the seed won't bear fruit. But then also we need to be ready for the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. Life is pretty manic, isn't it? In 2018, there was um, a survey conducted that said that 90% of the world's information was created in the past two years which is just the reality of life on the internet and data and information being generated and generated and generated and generated. Which means our generation is getting way, way more information thrown at us than any generation previously. I mean, imagine when you're in a sort of agricultural sort of life where basically all you had to do was go out, throw some seed around, and go home and have a conversation with your family. That was probably a slightly easier life. There was less coming at you than well, just everything that's coming at us all the time now. Which means there is a contemporary danger that I feel like there are just more thistles around, more thorns around that can choke out God's word. And so again, I think a discipleship question for all of us and as we train others is, how do we hold on to God's word in the midst of all the things that are coming at us? How do we discipline ourselves to say, there is so much going on, but listening to God's word is going to be a priority for me. You know, there are so many things crowding my mind, but above all else, I need the voice of God. And I need to hear about the kingdom that will last longer than this world. And again, that's probably just a discipleship issue as we train others. And it's probably just an issue for us to pay attention to. Note the twin contemporary dangers. But lastly... Be encouraged. The message will produce a crop. The message will produce a crop 30, 60, 100 fold. And actually, as it produces a crop, it produces something glorious. Do you notice what Jesus says to the disciples? Didn't really spend long in it in verses 16 and 17. Blessed are your ears because they see, and your ears because they, uh, eyes because they see, even, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. By the way, you do know Jesus' humility is different to ours. I mean, imagine anyone saying, gosh, just, you guys, you are so blessed because you get to hear me. I mean, I hope you're feeling that this afternoon. Your ears are so blessed to hear me right now. Many people have longed for this occasion, but you've got it. And even more, I mean, blessed are your eyes that you get to see me. I mean, lots of people would long for that, but you get to see me. Aren't you privileged? Isn't Jesus remarkable? Because that's what he says. Jesus has no doubts about how important he is. You know, Jesus' humility is actually knowing how important he is. He goes to the cross and he washes his disciples' feet. But he knows how important he is. And he knows the best thing for a human being is to hear him and see him. And that, in a sense, is what God's word does. As it lands and produces a crop, it enables 30, 60, 100 fold people to hear and see Jesus 
forever and ever and ever. And it's God's word that can do that. It produces this great crop. It lands on good soil and then produces more fruit and more fruit and more fruit and more fruit. And the thing that you can do as you look at the church is you can stop and say, wow, see what God's word has done. That's a familiar quotes. I've used this more than five times during the years. But Martin Luther, at the end of the Reformation, as he was sort of sitting down and reflecting with his friends and seeing the church that had been built as he preached the message of the kingdom, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. That's to say, translated it. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing, the word did it all. And testifying to what happens as the message of the kingdom goes out and lives are changed. It's funny, I found it quite moving about the church weekend last, last weekend and just at one point just looking around and seeing people of different generations and different nationalities and different social backgrounds all together praising Jesus. And the word did it all. You know, the message of the kingdom does it all. Why? Because as the message of the kingdom goes out, some of it will fall on good soil and produce a crop that produces a crop that produces a crop. And I want us to have confidence in the message of the kingdom, that it changes individuals and it changes societies. It is that powerful. And so the two implications that, partly that's an implication for us as we listen. This is dynamite. Listen to it. You know, let it sink into you. Don't let it be crowded out by everything else. Listen to this kingdom that points us to a glorious eternity. But then keep sowing it. I mean, I sometimes think, to be honest, it would make my life much easier if a kind of arrow appeared from heaven saying, path. Or an arrow appeared over somebody's head saying, rocky ground. Or an arrow appeared as sort of thorns. Or an arrow appeared over good soil. But of course, the reality is, that isn't the way it works. And we just don't know. We have no idea where it will land. And so actually, this is an invitation. Keep sowing. Keep praying, Lord, just give me an opportunity. Even if it's just very something very simple about Jesus that people can just ignore or ask further. But get the message of the kingdom out. Because it's through the message of the kingdom that people land on, that it lands on good soil and a crop is produced. One of the three or four of us pray. Um, we'll stay as one group actually. One of the three or four of us pray and then we'll sing our closing song.